and then cue the Baudrillard mix. The very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guests, consider tossing us a dollar a month of fiat currency to our Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H, or if not, consider throwing us a nice review on iTunes. Either way, we really appreciate you. So today it'll just be myself and our guest, Josh, and Josh has AKA the uh, blockchain radical. That's his <laughs> WWE name, but blockchain socialist. What did I say? The blockchain radical. That's the title of the book. <laughs> That's, That's the, the book. book. <laughs> That's the book. Already fucking messed up without Taylor's uh, calming presence, I suppose. But Josh, welcome to the Machine Unconscious Happy Hour. Thrilled to have you and do something a little bit different as far as our normal conversation. But I'm totally on board. I'm ready to rock and roll. Nice. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to uh, to dig into this. We'll talk about the book, but the book is like quite inspired by a lot of the work from Gilles Deleuze. And I know you guys talk about about his work quite a lot on the podcast. So really excited to to dig into that. We like to start off by asking our guests for their kind of origin story. So if you'll run with that, you can take that in any direction you want as far as whether that could be limited to, you know, tech, blockchain philosophy, theory, Deleuze and Guattari's work, whatever, you know, kind of direction you want to take that in, just to kind of set the stage for like your trajectory. Maybe I'll start with kind of like my, I guess what what I consider the story of like my lead up into like kind of being interested in cryptocurrency in the first place. I mean, it's pretty, I think maybe a lot of people have this, um, but why I graduated from university and my first job was paid very, very shitty. And kind of like my need to to pay rent and all my expenses and my like upcoming student loan debts, I realized at a certain point that like the wage that I was getting for my job was not enough to cover all of my expenses. First, I started driving for Uber and like this kind of like gig work platforms in order to like make some extra cash. And then as well, I was kind of thinking like, well, I'm pretty smart. I graduated with a degree in neuroscience. Maybe I can like use that knowledge in order to play around with like the biotech stocks or something like that. And biotech stocks are like very volatile where you can invest kind of like right before, you know, a new drug comes to market. And if you get it right, they get approved and the stock will jump up like, you know, 100x or something like that. And then you you like make a, a bunch of cash. And I thought that would be an easy way for me to like make money. I tried this like simu- stock exchange simulation game and I was shit at it. I was so bad. <laughs> I realized it's probably not something I want to do. It's also just like, I don't know, trying to do it is just like pretty horrible. But in that process of like trying to figure out like what are ways I can make money, 
I came across cryptocurrency. I had known about Bitcoin before as just like something that you need to like buy drugs online <laughs> or you could use to buy drugs online. But like, I didn't really need to do that. I got all my drugs offline. And so like, I wasn't interested in it for a long time. And then, then at a certain point, um, this was whenever Ethereum came out. And so Ethereum, I got really interested in because it, the focus was less about a kind of like digital gold. It was less about like, buying drugs online, whatever, like it was more about like smart contracts and thinking about how we can reorganize economic society in a certain way using cryptocurrency. And that was like really interesting to me. At the time, I was also like going through a kind of like political radicalization process. I was already on the left, but I was kind of, then I was like starting to also read a lot of, actually starting to read like, you know, Marx and like to actually read the philosophers that, you know, people warned me about. And <laughs> in that process, so I was kind of like, I was do definitely doing like the communist stuff a little bit more and just being involved in some like communist organizations and just like trying to educate myself on this stuff because it was sort of like, I'm really broke and poor and like this kind of stuff is like speaking to me. And so it was kind of like this, you know, over time, kind of like this contradiction of like, I know I need to like, do more socialism and socialism is like the way to answer things but also this cryptocurrency stuff is like very interesting to me but nobody kind of in these socialist circles that i'm in was really interested in it generally to be quite frank many of them were not interested in kind of like thinking about technology much in my experience and just like the people that i was around so i kind of had to do it a lot on my own and i started just kind of programming and coding with ethereum and like creating a node and just like playing with it firsthand I just like got deeper and deeper into it while at the same time, I'm kind of like reading more and more political theory. And to me, there was, there was a connection, but I couldn't really articulate it very well for a long time. And then eventually I got a job to work doing blockchain stuff. And so I, I started to like understand the technology a lot more and a lot like more intimately. And, and then kind of, there was like in me just kind of like this need to kind of like talk about the things that I was, that I felt like were connections that I couldn't find anywhere else. Just, I spent like a year or two just like trying to find, there's got to be someone out there who's like talking about crypto and from a lefting point of view and nobody was doing it. And so I was getting really frustrated. And then at a certain point I was like, fuck it, why don't I do it? And so I started just kind of blogging. And then now I do more podcast stuff. I'm hoping to do more, some video stuff uh, some point soon. Yeah, eventually I, I became a content creator, <laughs> which I like before then had never in a million years ha ever like expected myself to do uh, before then. I just kind of like kept going with it. And eventually uh, Repeater Books reached out to me if I wanted to write a book about blockchain and blockchain from a left-wing point of view. And so a couple of months ago, my book, Blockchain Radicals, How Capitalism Ruined Crypto and How to Fix It, came out through Repeater Books, which is really nice because Repeater was also very influential in my thinking. Mark Fisher, especially um, reading Capitalist Realism, however many years ago it was, was like very inspiring to me. And so it was like really nice to get asked by Repeater Books. We're uh, fairly good friends, and I'm not sure if you are familiar with Acid Horizon, another kind of podcast within the sort of, I guess, the post-structuralist space online as mm -hmm. far as philosophy and theory go, radical political theory goes and they yeah. got you know they work with repeater and zero books i'm yeah, actually have, eventually hoping to write same. like a deluze a book on dune and like the work of deluze and guattari and hegel etc enough about okay, my yeah. bs i'm going to be on their podcast pretty soon as well oh nice okay good gotcha. that's yeah good. 
you know, you mentioned the kind of gig economy at the beginning and your origin story. And I think it might be kind of interesting to start out and just kind of like analyze in a more objective fashion, like what rideshare technology really does. Even that represents an opportunity, I think, if you're thinking about some type of socialist society. It's a way to act, to utilize a resource basically that's being underutilized, right? Like people's cars are sitting in their driveways, not doing anything, right? Just sitting there. The rideshare network rather provides the opportunity for those people to provide a service to other people, right? There's, it doesn't necessarily have to be bound up within a strictly for-profit paradigm. Let's say I just wanted to, you know, I've done whatever my labor is for the day and I just feel like driving. I could throw on my socialist rideshare app and like take people where they need to go, you know? I mean, there's nothing stopping that from taking place, right? Like we don't necessarily have to be, everything doesn't have to be designed on this for profit model necessarily, right? That doesn't preclude us as well from like providing some type of compensation for like that person's time either, you know, the general thought process, like your approach to blockchain, I think is trying to point out kind of a similar kernel of truth within technology as a whole, or like our biases on the left, perhaps towards technology and what it can do. Yeah. That's not really I, a I would question say, though. <laughs> but I mean, I, I think I get what you're saying. Like there is a kernel of truth in like the whole sharing economy narrative that was yeah. like really prevalent in you know, like the 2010s or whatever. Of course, did the promises of the sharing economy like come about? Probably not. I don't know if it really encouraged more people to have to like not buy a car and instead just like use ride sharing and that it was like an efficient use of a resource. But I think there's something to say about like, okay, under socialism, having already this type of technology like the the whole there is an open source tool for kind of like you know maps and like tracking people in a map and like using smartphones to kind of like do that tracking like there are applications out there that are very similar to uber that basically just use entirely open source tools that are already out there which people can just like copy and take and just create an entire application the problem with uber is not exactly the fact that they're using technology that it's like the fact that the uber company which is owned by like all these is owning everything. And they're kind of like incentivized through capital to extract as much money and resources as possible. Whenever we're talking about socialism, at least personally, the way that I see it is piggybacking or just taking advantage of all these tools that have been built, even if it was under capitalism or whatever, and just reconfiguring and reforming them in a way that is like more that doesn't require this kind of like extractive component to it. And the extractive component of it is like very much like a social, socio-political thing, of course. It's not like a, there are technical aspects in, in which like technology can encode certain social relationships inside of it. It doesn't have to be that way. And I think the way that the internet is kind of how it exists right now, I think there's like, it's not surprising that a lot of people have this like love-hate relationship with the internet, especially on the left. Like, I don't know, people will like, joke about oh it was a mistake that the internet was invented or something like you know like make these kind these kinds of jokes but i think it's because people in their head there is this we'll talk about this image of thought of what the internet is and the internet is the way you think it is instantiated at the moment and the way it's instantiated at the moment is like this very very few giant tech corporations own 90% of the of internet traffic 
your image of the internet is purely like going through these platforms and not something else or not what it could be. And that sort of like limits our imagination in many ways to kind of like think about what can we do differently. I actually did ride share myself for, I was a driver for maybe about three years or so. It was interesting kind of corollary here in Austin, the city passed some regulation on rideshare drivers. Like there was a municipal thing where you had to like register with the city and be fingerprinted, et cetera. That ended up chasing Lyft and Uber out of the city for a while until like for like a year, maybe until the state of Texas stepped in and brought them back effectively. <laughs> But I think so as Greg Abbott came in and yeah, said, Yeah, no. exactly. <laughs> uh, small, small government Greg Abbott came in and was like, mm. Nope, we're going to override the people <laughs> of Austin's will. But that's, a, that's a, another story. But in their place, there was a nonprofit called Ride Austin that developed and kind of stuck, you know, jumped into the market to help fill that gap as well as, as some other like private players. But, you know, the cool thing about Ride Austin was the earnings for the drivers was probably, I don't know. 10, 20% higher. So it was really nice on the driver's side whenever that whole thing was going on. That's another example. Obviously, that's not as great as like, you know, if it would be like a co-op of rideshare drivers that utilize their own like token or what have you. You know, that's obviously another way you could very easily see that kind of thing, right? Working out, I think, as far as offering a rideshare service that's divorced from the primary capitalist economy the great thing about the crypto tokens or the blockchain tokens would be you can sort of have your own micro economy i suppose or your own like micro currency and you know that's a really exciting opportunity for co-ops and like building building the socialist economy from the like ground up and it's interesting that those tools are there and available and we just kind of need to have the the capacity to mobilize those and you know there is opportunity in those little like cracks and fissures in the capitalist regime i suppose but at the same time i think it is kind of interesting when you're looking at competition and these technological advances relative to companies and tech because from sort of a capitalist perspective, you could say that the taxi industry, due to lack of competition, right, due to lack of competition, they got lazy, they got complacent, they offered a shitty service, along came Uber and Lyft and disrupted the space because they were coming at it from a different perspective, right? They weren't sort of sitting on their laurels, right, and like just kind of profiting off of the existing social relations of fucking of the taxi service, right? It is this kind of like double-edged sword when it comes to these things. So you have that aspect where, yeah, like companies do sort of stagnate, but at the same time, it feels kind of fucked up for what's the major innovation for Jeff Bezos, right? It's like, you know, putting a bookstore online. I mean, obviously that's kind of a, a reduction or a big reduction even, but I mean, you know, PayPal, all of these services that are really like taking pre-existing things and putting them on the market in a different way where they're cutting costs. There's something very predatory about that. And I think in a sense, that's almost a rent-seeking type of, not quite, right? It doesn't quite fit into rent-seeking, but it kind of, I don't know if you see what I'm saying as far as 
you're not really innovating per se. Like you're just taking advantage of like a technical lag, I suppose. Maybe you would even point to that as an inefficiency in the marketplace though. To your earlier comment, yeah, like I, I sometimes I, I try to use taxis more as a way to just like not be dependent on Uber so much, but is also at the same time, like I've been fucked over by so many taxis. It's like, sometimes I'm like, okay, I prefer using Uber in this country or situation just because right, yeah. all these taxi drivers I've been working, I've been trying to go with, like have screwed me in some way. It sucks then to have to use, to use Uber, but uh, yeah, to the, the technical lag, it, I mean, I think there's something to say for or Slack. Like, a is lot that of like things, Slack, you know? I suppose, would be the better way to describe it, right? Maybe, yeah. Maybe in some ways, yeah. There is sort of like, though, you can say that like, that a lot of things have become kind of subscriptions and have become like a form of rent where we no longer, because on the internet, like we no longer really own things in the same way that we, that we, that like ownership kind of takes place via physically having something like i don't know use a uh, title or spotify or whatever else like you don't own any of the any of the music right, that's, yeah. that's on this ui essentially they keep up with your profile they keep up with like what you've liked and then they like they run maybe some analytics to give you some recommendations it's all subscription based and that and then you can say a lot with like the steam store and in video games and like all these other kind of like things that are especially digital media have become this and there's no like sense of ownership and people see this coming and are kind of uncomfortable with it. I think right, rightfully so. We've seen plenty of examples of like this going wrong. If a company kind of just like goes out of business, if Spotify goes out of business, you've lost all of your playlists, all of your music, which you were using as part of your life. You know, we don't really buy CDs anymore or whatever else, and they're expensive. Of course, there's you know pirating or whatever, but I mean maybe pirating just needs <laughs> should make a comeback. But also, people want to support artists in some way, maybe, I don't know. The risks of pirating, I think, for the, I guess the average per the average person, I think are the, what makes that, that's the cost benefit yeah. analysis sort of thing you have to make mm -hmm. as far as that. That's kind of the thing that keeps me from pirating. It's like, cause I'd have to have my own infrastructure. I'd have to know, you know, kind of be a little bit more savvy about what are the sources and methods and ways to do it properly without exposing myself to hackers or you know bad actors etc i don't know if you use like limeware but like if you, you get like the blink <laughs> like blink 182 which is actually like smashing pumpkins which is actually like a uh some sort of like um you know some malware or something <laughs> or it's just like one line from the song over and over again for like eight hours or something crazy and there's lower downloads oftentimes Let's back up a little bit because I jumped a little bit ahead, I think. And you did choose, a, I think, a great quote from Deleuze. Though. I'm going to go ahead and read here because I think this is super interesting and this can tie us back into something like anti-Oedipus. So. Writing has nothing to do with meaning. It has to do with land surveying and cartography, including the mapping of countries yet to come. The clear argument here that Deleuze is making is that writing is didn't become a thing because of storytelling per se we had the oral tradition forever but this was like a strictly economic solution let's say a solution to an economic problem in terms of counting and measuring and territorializing marking boundaries etc 
you know, in something like an economy, right? Who determines what gets valued, for example? Looking at something like the productive capacity of, of women as far as reproduction goes, that's something that's excluded from an economy of exchange for the most part, right? We do have, what do they call the surrogate? You can buy, like hire someone to be a surrogate mother, which is a little bit scary at the same time as being beneficial, right? <laughs> Again, it's kind of the the two-edged sword. It's about like making a map of the territory. Like writing is a model, right? It's it's describing or it attempts oftentimes to describe something that exists in either a, a material or very abstract way. And when he says like including the mapping of countries yet to, yet to come, like for me, the way I kind of interpreted it was of like thinking about what's to come in the future as well. And sort of like outlining outlining the new models for the future to come, the new maps that we use to kind of understand the world. And so like in the book, the introduction is titled Forging a New Map of the Crypto Territory. So right now, kind of what I was trying to get at is that there is often people come with an already existing map of the crypto territory based on what they've been told about it and how they understand it and like what they've been marketed essentially of what cryptocurrency or blockchains are and what they are or are not useful for. And so like a big part of the book for me was like trying to create a new map, a new way for people to kind of navigate this territory of crypto and blockchain world in a way that is that it gets rid of the bad part, let's say. Because plenty of people, of course, are skeptical about blockchain and crypto in totally understandable ways. And my kind of like take on this is that like the map that is kind of like being given to you by kind of like these bad actors is not the map that you should be following when you're navigating this territory or like thinking about this territory. That's why I... I had put that as a, as a first quote. So the way that I read this was more so thinking about the system of inscription, right? And recording surface. And this is stuff from Anti-Oedipus. Going back to like the system of cruelty, like in tribal society, the marking of the body, right? Typically some type of pain, you know what I mean? Some type of process of, what do they call it? The system of cruelty. Literally inscribing using the body as the recording surface and inscribe mm. marking the body using that as a way to represent the debt owed by the individual to the tribe for their life right because it's a collective whenever something is displayed on the body it's it's difficult to <laughs> yeah right it's difficult to Andy. counterfeit a mark like that you know what i mean because mm. you have the big deterrent of the pain involved right is one mm. deterrent but you know obviously there are others so you can, I think you can draw a very nice through line yeah. from the body <laughs> as recording surface to something like blockchain as a distributed ledger technology. Yeah, like, like yeah, the, yeah. Oh, that's that's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, you see well, it's saying? also like, difficult to kind of like um, to plagiarize or to like fake a transaction on a blockchain. Exactly. There's something about the transparency of the ledger itself that offers the benefit. The kernel of that idea is 
so similar. That's what's so interesting to me is like, this is using technology to solve an old problem. How do we trust, build trust between people within a society or a tribe or what have you? And that's by marking, like, if you want to go to the the ancient Hebrews, right? Like they use circumcision, right? Like that's the system of cruelty. That's something you're not going to be able to, to mm. fake. It's obviously a mark on the body that counts you as part of this particular tribe. I mean, crypto is kind of like, I mean, not crypto, but like blockchain. You're saying public, crypto is like circumcision. Exactly. Pu <laughs> a, a public ledger in a way, right? Like it's... <laughs> But yeah, 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 I think there's there's a really good uh, there's a really good at least a blog article to come out of that <laughs> and that connection. We also talked a little bit about this sort of bias on the left, and I think like I, my opinion again is that a lot of it is the aesthetics of the sort of crypto, like the social space of the crypto world, is filled with a bunch of ridiculous stereotypical characters, almost to a certain degree. Like, yeah, very libertarian for sure. It's like it seems like the Wild West of speculative, just like old school American hucksterism is almost <laughs> kind of like reborn in this fashion. With more memes, maybe. You use this really great example in the book about the drum machine and how that and that example of the drum machine, I think you draw on the work of Deleuze and Guattari and sort of the neutrality of technology itself. So I don't know if you want to talk about that. Is that a fair question to ask you? Maybe to help um, listeners kind of understand kind of like the framework that I'm approaching the crypto world from to sort of understand it and to create this new map of the territory is I use the example of the drum machine to kind of understand using Deleuze's critique of representational thinking, which I think is like mostly in from difference in repetition. You know, he talks about how people generally, you know, this is like, I'm going to simplify things quite a bit, but people generally take models of the old in order to understand the new, or they like impose the image of thought onto this new thing as a way to try and understand it. And this comes from, you know, this is what he calls arboreal thinking, right? You have like the ideal form, like the platonic ideal form. And then like, there are things that are like representations of it that are like the branches of the tree. The drum machine is a really nice example of how representational thinking is incorrect. And I take this from, I mean, I should give credit to Jonas Jelka, I think say his last name, who is a cuck philosophy, who's a YouTuber. And so there's a good video on this, but the drum machine was a piece of technology that was created for people whose maybe their drum partner didn't come to band practice, right? You have your drummer with your drum sets is not able to come to practice. And so you buy the drum machine, you set up the, the rhythm that you want to, to do and you press play, and then you're able to like you know, play your guitar along with it and practice your music. A representation or a less good version of a drummer with a drum set. Ideally, you would have your drummer come to practice with his drum sets and you'll be able to play music together, but you don't have that. So you take a less good version of that and you get the drum machine in order to play with it. And so this would limit the way that like the drum machine was actually used in practice though. Like in what actually happened in history is people took the drum machine, they revved it up to 11, they played beats that no drummer could ever play, and they created new genres of music, and it even was added onto already existing genres of music to kind of like add to it. And so the drum machine effectively broke out of its representational model. Or you can say that the drum machine was never, it was never a good way to think about the drum machine in the first place, right? 
was always incorrect. Like this representational thinking is always incorrect. And so the drum machine thus is actually something in itself. It's something else besides being just a replacement for a drummer with the drum set. And so like what for me, how this relates to the crypto world is that like in crypto world and the map that people are given to try to understand the crypto world and navigate it is one that is like completely chock full of representational thinking that it's like all over the place. The way that everyone tries to explain to you what crypto is, is like an image of thought, it's representational thinking, and it's always wrong. It's always like incorrect. So like the three main kind of like representational models that I use to organize the book in three sections is crypto as money, crypto as finance, and then crypto as coordination. And what we've seen in the crypto world is we've seen like the narrative has changed to like fit the new representational model that like people are kind of like moving towards as people begin to use the technology more and begin to realize its actual affordances and what it can and cannot do. As the territory is being navigated, this representational model expands. For me, like all of these representation models, they're always wrong. But as like the, the old aphorism goes, like all models are wrong, but some are useful. Some can be more useful than others in, in certain respects. That's kind of like why I, I like to use this, like my own representational model of a map to understand models <laughs> uh, and navigation. It's very, a little, a little bit meta, but uh, yeah, I think that helps us realize kind of what we're doing in the moment as we think about it. So it's interesting, even like in your example there, I think you could even say that my my claim, right? I was saying the distributed ledger technology of the blockchain is like this system of cruelty, like this system of inscription on the body. Like that's kind of an example of sort of arboreal type of thinking, right? The dogmatic image of thought in a sense. What I tried to say is that like, it's not necessarily bad or right. like necessarily you know, that you shouldn't use a metaphor to understand something, just that we have to be kind of like cognizant and like think critically about those metaphors that we use and like how, what is it that is being abstracted away through that metaphor? And like, whatever we choose is like, there's some choice in what we abstract away, whether we're conscious of it or not. I thought it was like a good, an interesting connection to make. One of the things for Deleuze relative to thinking is like, he wants to look at at problematics. That's kind of the way that I was generalizing or like thinking about this is like, what is the problem that is attempt to attempting to being solved with a ledger? That's kind of how I was structuring my thoughts. So maybe not necessarily a bad thing, but I think that is really interesting to tear through. Like, what is the problem that we're attempting to solve? whether it be through a system of cruelty or through a blockchain. And like I said, I think it all goes back to trust between people, between would, actors, right? Like relate, social relations. I mean, I would say it's basically in like computer terms, it's the double spend problem. It's kind of like what explicitly they were trying to solve with like with creating Bitcoin, for example. You know, the double spend problem is basically the idea that computers are basically very good at copying. That's like what they do. They copy data and information and they send it out to another computer or whatever else. And so if you wanted to make, for example, a monetary system that didn't require a government, that didn't require banks, but instead was run on a peer-to-peer -peer system, how would you do it? Bitcoin was kind of like 
the answer to doing that. It solved the double spend problem, which is like a, you know, to give like another example, if you wanted to create a monetary system using email, I send one money to Cooper, then all I've done is copied and created two monies, right? When what I want to do is similar to how I use cash, I want to give you the thing and then you have it. These are like two different worlds, right? Like in the physical world, we are we are made of atoms. In the digital world, we are made of bits. And copying is kind of like the default way of how we how we deal with like matter in computer world. This is actually a quite difficult problem to solve, but Bitcoin kind of solved it in many respects. In like a very there are like ways to solve the problem if you think about it in in a smaller sense. But if you think about the problem at like this, I want to create a monetary system that is like globally useful, then Bitcoin did kind of solve the problem, but it didn't really necessarily make money is kind of like my, you know, my argument. Just to maybe also add, it's important, this double spend problem is not just like, it's not just about like, it's, it's often couched in like monetary terms and context. Mm-hmm. It's about like double spend, like you're spending money, but I think it's also the double spend problem is also relevant for voting. It's also relevant, like you don't want somebody to be able to vote twice if, you know, for example, they only have a right to one vote. How do you prove that this person has already voted? There's tons of stuff on like electronic voting systems and and whatever else. And usually the way that they solve this is by relying on like a centralized company or actor or whatever else to that you trust with all that data. Again, goes going back to trust, right? That might be the fundamental problem is trust. How do you trust someone that you don't know? It's easy for me to trust you, like if we're friends, right? And I loan you like five bucks. I know where you live, like, but it's in those situations where we encounter someone that we don't know and we have no way, no fast or quick way to, I suppose, authenticate their, like, whatever it is they're offering or whatever the agreement would be, I suppose, in an exchange. But that's, again, getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. I wanted to just touch on really quickly going back to the drum machine. I mean, I think this is a prime example of where Felix Guattari would would kind of love that example and would like totally be on board with that aspect of of that kind of trajectory of technology being kind of like the way to move these things. And, you know, he really kind of had that more accelerationist approach to things where it's like, more gadgets, more crypto, different coins, basically overloading the system with all of this shit until it just breaks apart and literally gives birth to like the new, you know, which I think is quite interesting. But also to go back to my opening statements about the way the sort of, or I guess the duality within technology itself, right? So go back to like Marx and Hegel, you can kind of see that capitalism does sort of in a way kind of generate the tools at least it may not generate its own destruction but it it generates tools that would enable its destruction from within itself and the blockchain is an obvious really stark way i think to to think about that because like of my example of where if we started a socialist co-op for rideshare and we had our own blockchain with our own token that would be a really great way to have our own little micro economy that's completely divorced 
from the state. The only problem that I can see, and I think you address this a little bit in the book, is the problem of infrastructure. And I don't know if you can speak to this question fully, but to me, that's kind of like the uh, the big question is, you know, the you gave the examples about the trucker protests in Canada and how the coin wallets were like seized or like that that crypto was somehow the government got its hands on it, right? Like I think that's the big question is like how do we how do we do this without our own like literally our own separate internet? Are there ways to mitigate that working within the greater, you know, commercialized internet, right? Like the state capital nexus of of technology as far as the internet's concerned. The uh, example of the truckers in Canada, if you remember, they were, I mean, it was a bit of a, I'm not saying this was like a good example of crypto necessarily being used, that this was like a progressive cause, right? These are like truckers right. who are like mad about, I think it was like vaccines and totally. something else about to being going through the US or whatever. But what happened is that they were, they were using like GoFundMe or, or one of these kind of like fundraising platforms and the government kind of like cut that off. And as well, they cut off a lot of people who were part of the move of, of that movement access to their bank accounts. Although there are people I do not agree with, and they are, you know, probably more or less on more, more on the right. I think it just kind of showed like a small kind of like view on and of like these things happening. There are examples of this happening to people on the left, of course, as well. This is just like a very, like a fairly recent one when I was writing it. And so what they did is that then they started raising money in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency, and then the government gave them access back to their bank accounts. So there was like big backlash. And then they were like, okay, we'll just raise in cryptocurrency, which they can do because they are getting around the monetary system. So like, I think it was like this small example, the exact same thing happened with WikiLeaks. If you remember back in the day, WikiLeaks in like 2010, 2011, was cut off from PayPal and cut off from all these other bank accounts that they had. And so people could not donate to them. And so they started accepting cryptocurrency as like, a bit, it was just Bitcoin at the time. So they started accepting Bitcoin as like part of, so that people can like support the efforts. And they made a killing off of it, to be honest. Like a lot of people bought Bitcoin and wanted to help WikiLeaks. And so I think one of the I think this kind of points at kind of like one of the things that cryptocurrency is able to do is is kind of get around the system. It's not because it is money, but it's because it is not money that is that it is able to do that. But so like I think your your question was something about building another internet. That's a good question, but it's a big one. It's sort of like I would say that I do think that the left needs to take much more seriously the question of what is our technical infrastructure, right? That question is not really ever asked about. And every time it's sort of, it's, it's just not, never taken seriously. And like, I've seen so many different groups and organizations, they use like Google Docs for everything. They use like big tech platforms who, if you are like a group that's like, we want to bring down capitalism and you are <laughs> using Google Docs in which they have like full access to everything that you're writing in there and whatever else, then maybe it's like, there is something missing there that we're not really fully comprehending. And, and I totally understand it's sort of like, well, what do we use then? What what tools are out there? And there's this game to play of like, 
is it user-friendly for people who are not techies or whatever? And is it something that is like safe to use, is safe enough to use for our current needs? Like, I totally understand that, but it's not like an open discussion or thing that we talk about. It's just sort of like hand-waved away because a lot of people who are, I mean, to be perfectly honest, a lot of people who are in on the left and really active in these type of circles tend to be people who describe themselves as like not technical or like not techie, I find very often is the case. And so they like kind of shy away from, from these problems and questions. But there is like, I think, of course, this problem of like the current internet as it exists is very controlled. There are more and more ways of like being able to have better OPSEC. Like if you want to protect your like your own internet traffic, there are more and more ways to do that. There are VPNs, there are mixed nets. Some of them use cryptocurrency in order to facilitate the mixed net. That just kind of just anonymizes your everything that you do when you're on the internet. And that's something that maybe it's important in certain situations. Maybe it's not so important. But like this question of technical infrastructure for the left needs to be considered. And it's sort of like, it's kind of sad a bit because the right asks this question way more than the left. And so it's almost like there's this like chain of connection of like, oh, since the right is asking that question, it must be a stupid question because the right is asking that. But they do have, there are projects out there about trying to tackle this problem space of like, how do we create a new internet? And right now, kind of like the biggest project of that is Urbit. And Urbit <laughs> is like, it was started by Curtis Yarvin, you know, like it's a problem, but it's also like, there's no left-wing kind of like explicitly left-wing group doing this, not saying that Urbit, is it explicitly right-wing? I mean, it, Curtis Yarvin, yes, did found it. He did leave it. And there are people who probably work in it who don't really give a shit about his politics or writing. There's another project called Holochain that's doing something kind of similar, but it's still like kind of being tested and, and, and all these things. But this question of the left needing to build technical infrastructure, I think is like way, way bigger than, than people realize because we're just like more and more kind of reliant on these digital and technical systems to the point that we can't really get around it. And it is a good way to like reach a mass audience and to, to collaborate with one another without needing to be right next to each other. It's a big problem space that I wish more people could spend more time thinking about. I was under the impression that even some of the crypto that was sent to the supporters of the truckers strike thing had been somehow seized by the government as well. So that's kind of, why. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think that a bunch, but I think they were somehow able to like fuck with some of the transfers or something. Somehow. Um, not with the transfers, but if they used like a custodial wallet. So depending uh, on the, on the wallet gotcha. that you used and if it's custodial, so it's like actually owned by, a company. Okay. Gotcha. Um, then of course they can tell the company, Hey, give us the money. And they're going to comply because they're a business and wants to do business in Canada. Right. Right. Yeah, um, exactly. There was this like standoff between the Canadian government and a specific Bitcoin wallet provider, which they are, it's non-custodial kind of like their product is non-custodial. So they have, even if they wanted to take right. someone's Bitcoin from their wallet, they wouldn't be able to do so. So that it kind of shows kind of like, there's a really big difference in relationship wise with the comp the, the product and the company and like them being able to or not being able to like butt in at the request of a government whereas if this was paypal they have no excuse if this was like any sort of like 
fiat money based financial services provider, they have no excuse. I think blockchain technology could be used to coordinate over the existing internet infrastructure, but like there are those vulnerabilities like you just described, but I also think something like electricity, they could just fucking shut off your electricity. Then you're sort of like, what are you going to do? How are you going to access digital property? Now I have heard as well, and I don't know if you can speak to this, that there are ways to do the transactions like via somehow somehow handwritten or like you can calculate you can do some i mean probably not actual mining but if you had like the keys or some shit you could actually figure out how to physically transfer i guess the the access to the digital currency if that even makes sense i guess it depends on what you're trying to do like so the... like if i wanted to pay you in bitcoin just as an example and we didn't have access to computers, could we somehow physically trace the transaction until there's an opportunity to, act? I don't know, access a computer or something like that? I mean, you can, you can simulate the transaction. It depends on how much, how much access to technology in your computer gotcha. or whatnot okay. you have. So it really depends. There are like, I have seen crazy experiments of people sending bitcoin transactions through radio wave so it's like it's not like just a blockchain is a peer-to-peer -peer network as far as the level of the nodes who make up that network oftentimes as a user you are not you're not running a node you simply access a node and then you access the network there is some separation and so if a node is able to receive information via radio wave then it can do that what there is sort of like this inside of the, the network of nodes, there's like a peer finding algorithm. So like it helps you find peers and there are different methods for doing that. The most common one is of course using like HTTP to kind of look around the internet or whatever, or there, there are certain, you know, certain types of traffic that, that are being looked for um, in order to like identify peers and peers will identify themselves and whatever else. So it is sort of like, I've gotten this before of like, well, crypto wouldn't work if the internet was shut off or whatever else. But it is, that also means it's shutting it off for everyone. It's right. shutting off electricity for everyone. That Then you're, the, the problems that you're dealing with exactly, are way yeah. beyond. <laughs> like, you know, like I'm not promising you that crypto is going to like, it's not a big red button to stop capitalism, obviously. Right. I see your point. Maybe we can back up a little bit. I mean, we kind of went in this direction of maybe discussing a little bit more broadly blockchain i guess ledgers more broadly maybe kind of arrive at some type of even though this is kind of like self-defeating our own like what our little model perhaps for what blockchain is or or represents in the sense of digital a distributed ledger technology well what's a ledger right like what is it what problem does a ledger solve what problem is a digital ledger is a blockchain what kind of problems can they solve and how do they solve them? Just kind of thinking out loud here to help give yeah. you something to actually respond to. It has a lot to do with like this double spend problem or like variations of this double spend problem and how to track transactions and such. Of course, the or like the traditional, I'm not forgetting the name of it, but like um two Double entry accounting, I think, is what double it's entry called. accounting. There you go. Yeah, you know, it, it does this through debits and credits, and like 
in history, you know, anthropological evidence shows that like in the past, you know, they would make like, they'll have a stick and they'll break it off. And then you can prove you're the, the debitor, the creditor of some sort of transaction that you can like match the stick together. And then the it's made whole. And then double accounting was like, you know, we have the plus and we have the minus on one side and the other side. That's basically what kind of a blockchain does oversimplifying a little bit, but not too much. It just tracks where is and is not your cryptocurrency uh, for the most part, or it tracks what it is exactly you ask it to track to do in the case of smart contracts. And so just to kind of like make, maybe this, this might be important for people, the Bitcoin blockchain is largely, it largely tracks Bitcoin. That's like what it does. There is, that's like its, its main functionality is to send and receive Bitcoin. And it kind of just like is a giant computer that is, you know, computing that everything is, is matching up as far as what should, how much should exist and who has access to like what number of Bitcoin they have. And so then with Ethereum, kind of like this new evolution of blockchain came the idea of smart contracts. The word smart contract is a little bit deceiving because it has nothing to do with actual contracts and like the actual legal system, right? It's, it could be thought of more as just like an autonomous script, automatically executable computer code, except for a lot of people who don't know much about computers that might not mean very much to them. But essentially it is like an if-then statement that if X happens, then do X with my cryptocurrency or whatever else. The idea there was kind of like, we've made money on the internet, now we can make money programmable. That's kind of like how the narrative goes in crypto world. Of course, I would say you didn't make money, but it doesn't really matter. That's how they kind of like generally describe it. And so then with Ethereum, you have called the Ethereum virtual machine is essentially like this. You can think of a blockchain as well at the same time as like a giant computer that's made up of many different middle, little computers as well, like as a peer-to-peer -peer system. Because the, the state of the computer is shared with all of the different nodes, they effectively act as a single computer. And so it is computing everything that it needs to be tracking based on what code it has been given. And so like you have sort of like the native cryptocurrency, which is called Ether. Ether you use to be able to pay for transactions. And it is also the thing that you kind of get rewarded for through the consensus mechanism. These are all words that may be complicated for people, but in the book, I have def really <laughs> much nicer definitions of all these things. So that is kind of like what is the kind of like default cryptocurrency. And then on top of Ethereum, via smart contracts, you can create tokens. So you can create kind of a cryptocurrency on top of this existing cryptocurrency network. So you have an automatically executable code that is tracking, for example, CooperCoin. So CooperCoin is a smart contract, or it's like a piece of software code that is running on top of the Ethereum network on the EVM. And it is tracking how much CooperCoin there is, who has CooperCoin, and the sending and receiving of CooperCoin. And it has all these, these functions in that code in order to like, for you to be able to do that. And then the ledger, the, the blockchain itself is tracking all these things happening. It's being, how did you describe it? Like it's being scarred into the, the skin. Inscribed. Of, yeah. <laughs> inscribed yeah. into the skin of, uh, uh, of the ledger. Essentially like 
it is like a tracking machine for sure in many respects definitely a large i you might call it an archival component but that not being the totalizing yeah. uh, of the applications of it what's interesting with regard to smart contracts is again i think it it goes back to the question or the problem of trust because in the capitalist economy the silent third party between all exchanges is the state you even use this as an example of i have one fiat dollar i hand you that dollar the state even though they're not physically present the power of the state is backing that currency right so yeah. they are the impartial third party mediator that allows for safe and effective transactions to occur so what the blockchain and the smart contract allows us to do is eliminate the state's ability to act or eliminate the need for a state for a centralized authority to act as the third party mediator we can have a truly third party and objective mediator by the code but that perhaps will be falling into the mindset of code as law maybe a little bit i don't know what you think about that but definitely a, have thoughts, a little please. bit i would say rather than eliminating i would say it opens up like an opportunity it opens up like a, a potential a potentiality depending on what our money especially is not like a technical problem and that's kind of like the mistake that the creators of bitcoin and people who wanted to make bitcoin kind of thought of it through that we just needed to if like we could technically reinvent gold sort of right if we could technically reinvent gold over the internet then we've won when the reality is that like money is like a lot more than it's a lot more than just the paper cash right it is like the enforcement of the government and it's violent for some people this for some people this is like a realization that's like oh my god that's horrible we need to that's uh, we need to change that but for if you're a banker if you like work deeply in the financial system it's like yeah of course like of course it works like that that has to happen there has to be kind of like this force that enforces the use of the dollar via taxes via debt via all these other things and including like the US military or whatever that makes it money that keeps it like stable because we know you know the US government is going to continue to exist probably for the foreseeable future and therefore it's best i i can accept this money knowing that it'll be worth $5 would be $5 in 10 years or something like that of course there is a little bit of inflation involved in all of this in which case libertarians would be like oh my god inflation is destroying us but it it's sort of like a requirement in order for it's a contradiction within the system that is required for it to like function in the first place. Blockchains don't really solve that problem. It's sort of like, I think that's why there is this like need for kind of like, it, it begins to mimic a speculative product because then they realize, oh, we just need everybody to be into this. We need everybody to like want this new internet money. But the only way they can sort of like instantiate that is via like speculative price going up price going down trading whatever yeah. else is a way they like get people into it to to believe in it but then they're not treating it as money so that goes back to my idea of the rideshare co-op and how that sort of blockchain can facilitate i guess the it's not quite a black market but it maybe would that be like a black market economy right you know what i mean like there's a an economy that's 
divorced from the greater capitalist economy. So this would create problems for the state when it comes to taxes, et cetera, right? That's literally like checking out of the capitalist economy completely to a well, not necessarily, but it can the, facilitate that application. The maybe like the the institutional capitalist economy is kind of like how you have some ways out, but yeah. it's yeah, it is like kind of a, a a black or gray market type of thing a lot of the time. And there are like pros and cons to this, right? People will talk about oh, crypto is like the new shadow bank. It's like new sh it's shadow banking, which I spoke about in the in one of the chapters. But at the same time, it's like capitalism is dependent on the shadow banking sector to exist because it needs like new places for capitalist markets to grow. And this a lot of this like high growth happens in this in this sector. It is, of course, incredibly predatory in practice by most people. But then there is also like plenty of plenty of economic activity is done outside of the eyes of the state. And as far as like tra keeping track of like for taxation or, or whatever else that we wouldn't necessarily consider bad, especially if you're on the left. I sometimes don't like it whenever people kind of associate the left with like paying taxes or something like that. <laughs> I yeah. just like every socialist loves to pay their taxes or something. Right. Yeah. This goes to bring my point a little bit and a sharper relief would be there's no ethical consumption under capitalism because the US dollar is backed by violence, right? If we have our own currency on our own chain, our own token, right? Then that token is not inherently backed up by the system of violence, right? Like a global system of violence and exploitation. So sure. that's the huge opportunity is for people to act. If you're like an anarcho-communist type of person, like this is exactly the type of shit that you want, right? Small, autonomous groups doing their own economy. I mean, I've heard you on another podcast talk about then you can have you can build out other networks to other chains or token. You know what I mean? Like you can build a whole separate economy out of this. You like it has that potential. It, you know, yeah, a, it, a co op it of co op, or I forget what you call it, maybe a network of co ops or something like that. Sorry for interrupting. No, yeah, maybe I said that. I think this is getting at like this requires, this still requires organization. This still requires social organization. Sometimes people kind of like satirize my point of view on, on blockchain or something like that and be like, oh, you think crypto is going to bring socialism automatically. Blockchains aren't going to bring socialism, you idiot. And I'm like, yeah, of course not. <laughs> I'm not saying right. that. I'm saying it's like a tool for the left to consider as part of its toolbox of many different tools and techniques that it can use to move forward on, on, on the goals that it wants to move forward on. Tackling that problem of ethical consumption, if I had the opportunity to... You could do this in so many different ways. Like You really could create this more widespread geographically diverse community utilizing the same chain the same tokens and then just using that token as the internal currency for the economy and then you're not really having to you're not contributing to yeah the fucking united states war machine right and the exploitation of people all across the world it definitely has that application but there are other great things i mean you mentioned voting as another 
really solid example. Am I jumping ahead in terms of how the hash hashing would help with voting or I might be mixing, getting ahead of myself um, or mixing things up? I was just trying to think we, about the way that I guess that sort of there's a singular, maybe the key that gets generated facilitates that hmm. and the way that it kind of solves the double spending problem for voting. I don't know. Maybe hashing is more tied to mining specifically. Hashing is involved in almost like every aspect of like cryptocurrency and blockchains. It's like very, very important primitive to understand. I talked about it mostly in the context of consensus of like proof of work or proof of stake. When we're talking about voting, because we've we've solved the double spend problem, we've solved the double spend problem for like things that are pretending to be money and as well voting and things that we want to use for voting mechanisms. And that would be done by and large through smart contracts. So you can think of really a cryptocurrency or a token on any cryptocurrency is not like, you can't think of it as a single thing. You can't think of it as, that's why I like, why I talk about like money, like oftentimes people think of like token, like, oh, it's just like a form of money. When I think of token, I think of like Chuck E. Cheese tokens. Like when I was a kid, I don't know, like I would go to the arcade right. and you get this token and that gives you the rights to being able to play Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles at Chuck E. Cheese. And so it has like a very specific context in which this token is able right. to be used. It is an arcade token, right? And when I go to vote, I get like a little piece of paper. I show them my identity or whatever, and I put in who I vote for. This can also be thought of as a token. I have one voting token every whatever four or five years when I go to vote, at least for like national elections or something. And so like the word token is like a very, it's basically an empty object that is useful in particular contexts in which you are designing when it is useful. And so you can create many tokens with many different types of contexts to do many different types of things, more than one thing even. Like in the case of like, if you want to make a stock, a stock where it gives you potentially dividends, it gives you right to speculate. It also gives you right to vote. In many cases, if you're like a stockholder in a company, or if you're a stockholder in an organization that is, that is run via smart contracts on a blockchain. And so you can create tokens that are essentially like votes in order to vote on some sort of to vote on what, you know, whatever it is that you are designing to be voted on through smart contracts. And so that is like a really, for me, like a really interesting use case is like, one, when I imagine socialism, I imagine a very democratic economy, an economy in which things are kind of like socially provisioned or democratically provisioned based on what people say their needs are, rather than their ability to pay for it. There's a need to be able to know what it is that people actually want. And voting is kind of like one way to think about how maybe we can kind of signal what it is exactly that we want towards the collective, whatever our, our ministry of like resource allocation is, is kind of like figuring out the plan for in our, in our democratically planned socialist economy. But we can also think about this in just like much smaller context in which you have an organization maybe dispersed around the world and you guys want to do a vote about something you can use a token as a way to kind of facilitate that vote. And this is already something that is done in crypto world. 
in what are called DAOs or decentralized autonomous organizations. It's very common in decentralized finance protocols that you have a what's called a governance token. And that governance token gives you a right to vote on some proposal about wanting to do XYZ. To me, this is like really interesting as far as thinking about how do we scale democracy? I'm thinking about this in the context of kind of like voting with your dollars and the market as a type of calculator or computer, really, mm. because they share some certain like properties. But I think obviously you're illustrating how, I mean, obviously there's flaws within using the open free market in quotes rather as a uh, as our calculator de jure, right? Because in that methodology, the people with more capital have basically more votes. This kind of solves that problem in a way and can make things more democratic by limiting. If we're talking about what people want, like I think there is something to the market getting at what people want in a way that is more I suppose true true like I hate to even say that but maybe like a small t true because due to visibility because I can say that I'm a socialist or I can say blah 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 but are my what choices am I making in the market am I making choices in the market that are are they hurting or harming the the broader collective or the broader society the question being like do we use this the idea of like a public ledger where every there's full-on transparency about what everybody's purchasing or exchanging that does involve a certain aspect of like a digital panopticon but at the same time like it also generates a way for social pressure almost to work to like work better for the social determination of what's acceptable to be handled in a different manner than this like clouded obfuscated money system that's all like it's not fully transparent where like money goes or what people are buying what faces are doing the damage in a certain sense like if you think climate change for example right like we have no idea at our level at the individual level like I mean, I guess we sort of do in a way, in a very abstract way, but we don't have like a specific way to say, okay, X organization is contributing X amount to climate change or what have you. The way that externalities are able to be obfuscated by the current system. And maybe that even would be mm -hmm. where shadow banking plays that role to kind of hold together that contradiction that you mentioned earlier. I'd say to your, to your earlier comments, I have a bit of a a spicy uh, take <laughs> in that um, Here we go. I think whatever kind of post-capitalist society that we're thinking of, if it involves a kind of democratic mechanism for allocating and like planning resource creation and allocation, it will likely, it could very likely look very similar to a market because there are these like overlapping features about voting and spending money that exist at the same time. And there's a, a way, I think, for these things to kind of like blend a bit in maybe interesting ways that could be very, very innovative because we have this kind of, if we were thinking through the lens of like a distributed ledger technology, then we have like access to all this information and 
able to manipulate at a very fine and detailed granular level that we can't do with like paper notes that could be very fruitful for kind of guiding like how we want the economy to develop overall. And so, yeah, I think like, I'm kind of like frustrated sometimes, I guess the way that people think about markets as like, Mm -hmm. I think there is, there's an image of thoughts about markets as being capitalist markets, right? right? Like specifically, especially on maybe like the more on certain, certain strands of the left. I'm not a like pro market person, but I can recognize that there are things that markets do that people like and yeah. prefer right. than to be simply told this is your ration of food because this is what the state believes. You know, like if we want a socialism to last and for pe- for it to be participatory, then I think thinking about how people engage in this process of how we decide what we do with our resources would be really important and could look a lot like a market because there are some things are just scarce resources and choices need to be made, you know? Definitely a good point to bring up that markets in themselves are not inherently bad. And we also don't necessarily even have to use markets for everything, right? I think markets can work very well whenever there's elasticity in a, pro- in a product versus mm. something like right housing, medicine, like food, right shelter, all those things. There's inelasticity. So Maybe those things don't get traded on a market, but other shit does, you know, entertainment, et cetera. Like, you know what I mean? We can make those decisions. We don't have to like lock ourselves into one particular usage of markets or like application of market technology. Kind of the reason I was bringing up markets too is that you bring up price signals and the Hayekian, the Austrian school of economics that I thought was kind of interesting. Before I get into that, I was going to say, The great thing about markets is in a certain sense, like their neutrality, because it doesn't matter what is being exchanged on the market. The market is indifferent or agnostic about what's being exchanged. And if we're living in a human society, change is an important component of that. So the market can accommodate change, changing wants, right? Changing wants. The market's able to contain that due to its sort of indifference about what information travels, I suppose, on its nodes, or I don't know if you would consider (laughs) it. It's like a market is kind of a form of a network. Ultimately, you have producers and consumers, et cetera, that are nodes and the information is exchanged in a certain sense. I don't know if that helps set you up to talk a little bit about price signals and things like that on the market, on the capitalist market. Because I think you had a pretty good and interesting critique. I mean, just to say a lot of the prehistory and history generally of cryptocurrency and blockchains is very libertarian. Like a lot of libertarian dudes were involved in its creation and it's kind of like, even it just its imagination from the get-go. This is a little bit off topic, but I think kind of funny sort of reasoning for why people wanted to make Bitcoin was because a lot of these libertarian types were extropians. They were really into cryogenic freezing to cryogenically freeze themselves until the point that their libertarian utopia is created at some point in the future, in which everybody's like in space and it's, you know, whatever Star Wars type of world. And then they would unfreeze themselves 
But since they're very libertarian and very capitalist, it means they are aware that they're going to pay a debt. They're going to pay debt to the company that cryogenically froze them and kept them barely alive for these thousand years or whatever. They needed a monetary system for them to pay them that wasn't connected to the government because the government was obviously going to collapse because of inflation and whatever else. So they needed this like secure way of, of having money for, they just have a Bitcoin wallet that they hold all their Bitcoin in. And then in a thousand years, they pay off their debt. Um, so I thought that was kind of funny. But so like there is this huge influence of libertarians and they are very interested in Hayek. Friedrich Hayek is like uh, kind of like one of their guys is whenever they're thinking about economics. I think because Hayek made this connection of the market being like an information system of prices, sharing information to buyers and sellers, and that whatever the price that came out was like the most efficient instantiation and like input of all this information to create like a number. And that was like, that number was perfect because it was like, it considered like the costs uh, of this and that and whatever else. Of course, from my point of view, from a socialist point of view, I think is that I think we can agree that pricing in a market does share information, right? It shares information about what people are willing to pay for a thing or what they have to pay for a thing. But it does not efficiently kind of input and understand all that information to produce that number, right? It's much more a function of power relationships and that if a company has a monopoly over a certain industry, then they can command much higher prices than another company who in a different industry or whatever, who doesn't have a monopoly. So like pricing is a very kind of like blunt instrument of understanding society and the world. And like libertarians and Hayekians love to like use price as like, that's the way we understand everything because it's this nice quantified thing. And I think that appeals to a lot of like, I don't want to say like, STEM people, mathematics-oriented, computer science people who love working with numbers. Like to them, Hayek, they're like, oh, th that gives them something that then they understand. They they know, they they know numbers, they can do numbers and they kind of run with it. I think I think there's like a little bit of a connection there. Maybe it's a little bit loose, but Hayek was like very, very inspiring for these people. So there's a little bit of a, I feel like a, a contradiction or like there's, there's a certain opening maybe with blockchains and cryptocurrency in that like with all of this information being legible and being known you can begin to think about things beyond price that price in financial price kind of way does not capture a lot of information right it only captures basically what are the things that people have to pay for if you don't have to pay for polluting a river then that does not get included as an input for your price, right? So in many ways, prices exactly. collapses information. But with a blockchain on a cryptocurrency network where all this information is potentially usable, we can think then about kind of more pluralistic ways of thinking about value, I think, that begin to take in these things that we thought were just externalities. Of course, what that means at the same time is that those things have to be recorded on chain, recorded on the blockchain in order to like be a part of like this entire calculation. Right. But it does, I think, it moves the like, you know, socialist calculation debate into like a new 
this is a new spot for like this calculation debate that I think we can like pretty easily kind of show Hayek was not really correct in like his in his judgments about about price clearly i mean you can just look at whatever scams and rug pulls that are they're so common in crypto like clearly there's not like a rationality there's no rationale to like all of this and there is no government involved so he he might say that like prices they get skewed because of government being involved well here government isn't involved and prices are still pretty skewed this gives us like an interesting kind of canvas to play with or design space to play with how we can create like economic mechanisms for how we begin to consider things that are just kind of externalities in status quo capitalism. So for example, my use or my discussion earlier about women's productive labor, for example, right? Like that's excluded from the productive economy or from like the quote unquote productive economy, other than obviously I said the the surrogate industry kind of is creeping into that space. But by and large, the expectation is that women are not financially remunerated for the greatest contribution one can make to a society in, in a pretty big way, right? Like offspring, right? We need to reproduce the species to reproduce the world, right? Obviously, that in a sense is like, maybe this is like a throwback to the old school thinking where housework or whatever is not exchanged on a market because it's invaluable. And it's invaluable because like it's necessity, I suppose, right? The mother taking care of the housework reproduces the ability for the husband to go to work, like in the kind of old classic, obviously reductive 50s era model that people never really existed per se, but really simplifying things down. That allows that system to persist. So labor is not being like, I suppose, assigned its proper value. Because it's not exchanged on a market. It's kind of a going, I'm like contradicting yeah. myself, but I'm like thinking through this question of exchange and what should be valued and how do we handle this in a like socialistic framework. But yeah. I think this, I mean, generally, this critique of price signals in particular, I really like this is the kind of shit that I love to kind of dig into. We had read and spoken to. You might find this person interesting, John Rofe. So he wrote a book called Deleuze and Abstract Market Theory. And kind of one of the big things I took from his book is that all prices are derivative. And it's almost like the system of, of language in a sense, right? It's like it's kind of this amorphous mass that everything pulls on everything else within the mass. So what a price is today is impacted by an incredibly diverse network of different variables. It's only in the instance that you're making the purchase. So like whenever you're handing that person money or you're clicking buy, like at that instant is when the price is determined, not at any other time. Oh. It's only in the last instance that price becomes legible or instantiated yeah instanti instantiated right that's the good way to i not the word i was looking for but that's a good way to put it and i think there's something really fascinating about that dialectic between determinism and chaos <laughs> and the way that it's expressed in price because what is a stock market chart but a sort of wave function of price 
Price is never essential. It's always in flux. It's always going to be impacted by what other prices are. And so we have to almost, we have to exclude one. We have to exclude the phallus so that we can use that as our suture point to derive all of the other prices are at the beginning. And once the system of prices is in motion, then it can continue on. But we have to set aside that one price to rule them all so the system can function, if that makes sense. So I don't know. I just think mm. that is like so fascinating. And it goes to, I don't know if you're familiar much with uh, Francois Laruel, but he has, or in the last instance, is it has ties to like this idea of radical imminence. The best way I can describe it is almost this dialectic between determinism and chaos. And I mean, even you could say that chaos is a type of determinism. So things are determined, absolutely, but not until the last instance. And I think that, I don't know, something about the way that Price mm. shows that there's something interesting there. I don't have the intellectual chops to like draw that out better for you, but I just think that's fascinating. Marx kind of, he kind of gets at that in Capital and talking about uh, the different forms that like in exchange kind of like when something is in the money form, when something's in the commodity form. But there is another book, maybe just if you want to go further down that rabbit <laughs> hole, uh, that might be interesting. It's called Justice is an Option by Robert Meister, A Democratic Theory of Finance for the 21st Century. It's really good. He basically talks about options, financial options on the stock market as being kind of like the way that capital is able to recreate itself. So an option, an option contract, you can short a company, right? You can, you can stock bet price is going to drop by X. Options basically, price of the stock is going to drop this number for this duration, and then the opposite right. would be the stock is going to go to this price at this time and duration. But I think there's something, there's even a third thing, right? Besides, there's, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of different- Because uh, you can financial. short and then you can <laughs> do the opposite, but I feel like there's something. Anyways, I'm getting off track. But I mean, with shorting in particular, it means that capitalism can bet on itself failing. And that means that when it does fail, it just makes all that money back. It gets all that capital back into itself and then recreates itself again over time until- Capitalism, even if it's failing, it's always able to continue. It doesn't matter that it's failing because there is no way to capture all that lost value from its failure. There is no kind of like social justice seeking, I don't know, investment firm. Yeah, because we, <laughs> we don't have like a, we don't have the transparency into the ledger to see. And that goes to the externality point too. And it comes down to information and who has access to it and information. It's not the freer the the markets are, the freer the society. It's like the freer that information is, the freer society is. Another one of my potentially spicy takes is that the left doesn't consider information theory enough and like the role of information asymmetry in markets as being like fundamental to capitalism. Oh, for sure. You always know a whole lot less than capitalists do they have like privy to so much more information and they're able to make sense of that information and there is no like collective sense making about economic data in the world that is very like 
clear for people to understand kind of what's going on. So I think a big part of like building a type of socialism or, or post-capitalism, I think has to involve kind of like reinvigorating or like really, really improving the ability for like, I can just call like collective intelligence, being totally. able to know at a collective level kind of what is going on and what needs to be done based on the available information. But that's a whole other rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, that's the most beautiful application of the blockchain technology right there, you know, is like being able to facilitate that type of a, of a social arrangement or social relations. You know, I think that's, that's it. That's like the, what is it? The killer app in a sense, <laughs> we just have to sort of like yeah. make it happen. We're in the process of making right? it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you have to think it first too, before you can like Freud started out very small with psychoanalysis, you know, is there anything that we didn't cover? I mean, I know there's a few things we didn't cover that I think are important, but I don't want to take up too much of your time. But if there's something you were like hankering to uh, discuss before we wrap up, this might be a good time. Um, DAOs might be interesting. I just find DAOs tend to attract a lot more progressive-minded people in crypto generally. Okay. And like just thinking about the problem of organization. Yeah, you talk about the, I guess there's a, what it would be like a shibboleth amongst the kind of crypto crowd that coordination is like the only issue and your discussion of Moloch and kind of like that being, or this like idea that coordination is sort of the last monster or demon that we have to slay to usher in before we can usher in utopia. There's this meme in crypto world. The two astronauts, one is behind the other, the one's looking at the Earth. It's like, it's all coordination. And the guy mm -hmm. behind him has like a gun or whatever. It always has been. <laughs> it's all coordination meme. That's very popular in certain niches in crypto world. The more, I would say, at least aesthetically, more left-leaning part of crypto or progressive leaning. And I think it's because it's people who are attracted to the question of organization and the question of like, why is our current socioeconomic political system not organized in a way that benefits everyone, you know, at like a, a broad level. And so they, they begin to think about this idea of, of coordination because, and I think this stems from, ironically, it stems from Hayek, I think. Hayek thinking of markets as a coordination system, as a way of like, gathering information and data and then like outputting it up through price and that we're we're coordinating via markets i don't have too much of a problem with that assessment i don't think that's necessarily wrong we do coordinate via right. markets it does mean that sometimes people come at the problem from a very marketized framework then you have this like it's very common with liberals just generally of, of like aligning incentives just like incentives need to be aligned as like you know, the, the big problem that needs to be solved and therefore we'll then we'll fix everything. These people are generally interested in what's called decentralized autonomous organizations or DAOs, I mentioned earlier, which are hard to define explicitly because there is kind of like this mismatch and contradiction with like how it was imagined in the beginning and how it is actually practiced by people who call their organizations DAOs. Um, it used to come from the original term was decentralized autonomous corporation. You know, when the idea of smart contracts first came about, people were like, of course, these are a bunch of libertarians in this kind of space. And they're like, wow, what if we built Uber 
but without the Uber company. And we have like fully autonomous vehicles that are just running at cost. And people are able to like get to where they need to go via these cars because they're automatically driving and smart contracts are mediating the transaction between everything. And so they're kind of like, it's funny because kind of like when I first read that, I was kind of like, you're almost describing a cooperative, like almost like an automated <laughs> cooperative in a certain in, right. a, in certain respects. I think maybe in their minds, they were like, oh, but, you know, that's a great idea because then I would own the company or something. I think it gets at this kind of like contradiction as well of them also kind of knowing that like, as we build our productive forces and technological innovation, we kind of like, there's contradiction with capitalism and like the more machinery we use without workers, the less people there are who can afford the things that we sell. Yeah, but exactly. Self-defeating. This idea of like using finance, price, everything as like a form of coordination kind of came from this idea of a decentralized autonomous corporations where they're, they're just basically using smart contracts for everything. What in, is actually happening in practice is DAOs, many things call themselves a DAO with many different kinds of organizational structures within them. But there are some common similarities. One of them is that generally they have what's called a multi-signature wallet or a multi-sig. So it's often referred to. So this is basically on a blockchain, everybody has, you can create an account and you can make as many accounts as you want, right? All you have to do is you have to know your private key, which is a string of random numbers and letters. And that associates with your public key. So it's kind of like knowing your your password to your bank account versus your like, if you're in the US, it would be like account and routing number. If you're in Europe, it's the IBAN, the number that you give people for them to send you money. And so this is at a very, usually just one person holds one public key or they, they hold many public keys, but only one person is kind of behind it. But you can create a multi-signature wallet, which you can think of as just like a joint bank account. Again, map and territory. This is like just a good metaphor to kind of understand this where multiple people have ownership of one account. So then you can have it split up to where, for example, I have a project called Breadchain Cooperative. We have a multi-signature wallet in which there are, there are nine people who own the wallet, who are signers of the wallet. So we can create transactions from that wallet and we need five out of nine total people in order to send a transaction from that wallet. Let's say you're in your my little organization, my, my little communist organization. I can make a request to send money to someone else. And then that request will be sent to everybody else who's part of the multi-signature wallet. And once at least five out of the nine people, there's already one, that's me. If four other people sign the transaction, then the transaction will go through. You can codify certain governance structures within your joint bank account, your multi-signature wallet. There's that aspect. And then as well, what's also common is what I mentioned before, governance tokens. People will have, and this is like especially popular in DeFi or decentralized finance. They have these big applications in which they will have like an exchange, for, an, for example, they have a decentralized exchange in which smart contracts could do this or that to facilitate trade. And then they may put up a proposal saying, should we add this or that token as like part of our decentralized exchange? Or should we add extra rewards for people who trade this token or who provide liquidity for this token? And then people will vote depending on how much governance token they have. 
they are able to have more or less vote, right? And then they can that proposal will pass or fail depending on how the vote goes. Um, but you can also put into that into that vote like that it requires a quorum of people or like a minimum amount of votes to be to be have made in order for that thing to pass. And if it's an on-chain proposal, so if it's something that's is a smart contract itself, then depending on the result, it'll automatically execute, right? So it means that we have the vote and you cannot stop it once it is instantiated. So that's very interesting for like, there are plenty of examples in the world where like a vote was had and then nobody went through with it or like people who were at the top didn't go through with the vote because they didn't have to. This kind of like automatically enforces this type of governance. You can see like with these kind of tools, you can kind of, I'm not saying that the governance token example that I gave is a good one because it's actually a very bad one. Usually venture capitalists own the majority of the governance tokens. And so they manipulate votes quite a lot, but we can create systems that are not where you can create a token that is not like freely available to the markets to buy and sell. Right. You can you can encode that value into your smart contract. You can encode this like non-market value. <laughs> and then you can like sort of facilitate votes. And, and so you're basically, you have this autonomous organization in which people who are inside that organization have slightly more autonomy and potentially trust that what they are saying is being taken in and being inputted. And of course, I think like, there's a huge design space for thinking about different types of mechanisms we can we can make in order to like facilitate this collective intelligence like I was talking about earlier at least in in small ways DAOs for some reason attract a lot of people when it comes to the because they're interested in this they're they're getting at the sea they know that the issue is sort of like the organization of society is like not right or as well I think a lot of people are interested in DAOs and especially working in DAOs because it makes people think about like what is the most centralized aspect of their life being their nine to five. Everybody has to work a job in order to make money and go out. Uh, and so joining a DAO, a decentralized kind of potentially a workplace for some people, seems something very interesting to them. And oftentimes these are people who maybe don't know about cooperatives and all of a sudden they're like interested in DAOs and then they're like, oh shit, cooperatives have existed for hundreds of years and they have very similar problems. And then they like start getting into cooperatives and wanting to learn how do they solve those problems? Because it doesn't, just because you're doing this on a blockchain doesn't solve the problem of like everybody agreeing, right? I just threw a lot at you. You know, it's like a, <laughs> it's a very interesting topic for people on the left to, to dig into. I made recently a blog post. I have this series only two right now, but like crypto leftist heuristics. There's like a socialist 101 page on my website where people can can learn a bit more about these things and try to, I tried to like consolidate. So you don't have to go through all the bullshits because there's so much, like when you try to read into this stuff, there's like, so it's information overload for a new person. So I completely understand. So I tried to, to condense things as much as possible to like the most important points, I think. It's awesome that you're doing that because I think it is important to bring this to the left and like have this conversation, you know, obviously we've discussed a number of different ways that this technology can be mobilized to create a more democratic economy and society and solve some of the problems that are inherent within the capitalist economy, et cetera. To wrap up, do you have anything coming up, any new projects or other things that you'd want to plug or discuss? Please feel free. 
I have a website called theblockchainsocialist.com. It has sort of all my all my content there. If you want to to dig through, I release things usually once a week, either a blog or a podcast or a newsletter or whatever else. I also have Patreon, but I also have the ability for people to like have access to bonus content through crypto. So like if you're interested in like using the tools, I have I'm starting like a little DAO, just like a TBS DAO as a way to kind of begin to experiment with these tools as like a content in a content creator kind of way, you know, like people who are who are subscribers via this, you just purchase basically a subscription NFT. Um, you if you pay the subscription, then you have access to the DAO and you would be part of like the governance processes and and all these things. If you are interested in kind of like exploring that, I would recommend that as like a a nice safe place to kind of like do that. I'll I'll hold your hand and and help okay. you go through it. And then yeah, I have a, as well a crypto leftist subreddit and Discord. If you guys want to join as well on the Discord, we sometimes do some some like community chats and and presentations and stuff like that. So as well, if you have like if you like want to get into things and you want help, then there's plenty of people there who can help you out. And yeah, the book is out through Repeater called Blockchain Radicals. And I think that's mostly it. Well, on Josh, Twitter and everything else. I'll put links in the show notes and uh, just want to thank you again for taking the time to chat with us today. And that will wrap up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. Thanks again to Josh for joining us. Thank you. I really appreciate it. This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.